Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Tony Stacey, Chief Executive of South Yorkshire Housing Association. You can find him on Twitter at Tony Stacey. With a Twitter handle like that, you must be an early adopter, Tony. <laughs> I was, yeah. Tony, welcome. How did your day start today? I started off uh, doing early bird yoga in our conference room. So uh, it's something we've been doing for a few months. The numbers go up and down and today we had six of us. So it made it worthwhile. Tell me about South Yorkshire Housing Association. We're an unusual kind of housing association. Altogether, there's over a thousand of us in the country. But when we were regulated a year ago, the regulator said to us, goodness, you people aren't off doing a lot of stuff. Um, so much so that they asked us if they could make us a case study because they're not used to regulating an organisation with quite as wide a view of their purpose as South Yorkshire Housing has. So we're far more than just a landlord. We do have plenty of properties. We own about 6,000 homes. But we're far more than just putting a roof over people's heads. So we answer our why question. Why do we do what we do at South Yorkshire Housing? By saying, with SYHA, you can settle at home, live well, and realise your potential. So it's the whole person, the whole place. And what uh, stops us going completely bonkers is that we do have a focus geographically. So we're here to work in the Sheffield city region, the Sheffield travel to work area, if you like. And that balances up that very wide vision that we have of what our purpose is. So it's not just housing, it's regeneration, it's place shaping, health and well-being. As I say, the whole person and the whole community. Yep, that is quite a wide organisational ambition, I think. That's great. You're fiercely independent, resisting the general trend for housing associations to become large corporations remote from their local roots. You must have had overtures from other housing associations to merge. How have you maintained your resolve? <laughs> um, we, we, we are very clear who we are and what we are and what we're here to do. So when we were approached, for example, we have been a couple of times in recent years by associations who are working in different areas. And this wasn't an embarrassing approach. Sometimes when you have two housing associations wanting to explore the possibility of coming together. You have these awkward conversations around, well, who's going to be the chief executive then? And who's going to be the chair? And what's the organisation going to be called? And this sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, the really important stuff, you know. <laughs> um, but in both of these situations, these organisations were in trouble and they came to us to be taken over. So we could have... We could have done that. We would have had definitely had the whip hand. But our strategy is to work in the Sheffield City region. So why would we want to merge with another organisation that's based, in one case, 35 miles away, in the other case, 70 miles away? Mm. I told that um, story to another housing association chief executive. And I said, well, it's not our strategy. He said, why did you turn it down? I said, it's not our strategy. And he said... 
well, I'd have changed my strategy. <laughs> so, um, but with both of those approaches, all of the board members and all of the directors were unanimous that it didn't take our strategy forward as an organisation. Why would we do it? So fiercely independent, yes. Well, what I... What we do say is that we're very open to the idea of working in partnership and in collaboration with local organisations. So we're actually, we're probably more likely to merge with a local health trust than we are with a housing association uh, based in Leeds. So we're certainly open to the idea of collaborations, joint ventures, etc. with organisations that share that focus on place and the local area. You've borrowed an approach from Denmark to engage with your customers and your staff. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this is the Burtzog approach to providing domiciliary care. And it echoes the approach that we take as South Yorkshire Housing as a whole, which is a strengths-based approach. It's a people-first approach. So rather than, for example, when we first meet a customer saying or asking the customer what's wrong with them, what is it that they can't do? We start off with what they can do and what they like doing. So I'll, give, I'll tell the story. This is the first story that I heard of our work on a project called Building Better Opportunities. It's one of the first people that we started to work with was a young man with autism. And we asked him what it was that he loved doing, what he felt passionate about. And he likes to classify things. That's what uh, turns him on. And so we found him a job in a record shop. And then uh, we started to ask questions uh, about what he needed to be able to maintain that role. What did he need maybe in terms of benefits advice, in terms of advice just, just about getting started in a job? If you're, mm. if, you, if you're out of the workplace, it can be very scary and unfamiliar. And if your confidence isn't high... It's very easy to to look for an escape route or come up with an excuse as to why you might just duck out of it for a day. And then, of course, once you're away for a day, a day becomes two days and you soon decide maybe the whole thing's not for you. So it, it's not enough just to find a placement like that. We do have to make sure we wrap around the appropriate support so that the person can sustain what they're doing. Uh, but it's exactly the same approach that we follow when we work on Housing First, for example. So the people we work with our Housing First project, all of them have had numerous breakdowns of tenancies in the past. And our starting point is not to say what went wrong, but what is it that you feel you can bring to a, a tenancy agreement? What is it that, um, what are the skills that you do have? Perhaps they're budgeting, or perhaps you're a good neighbour. And the very first thing that we do is to find them a house or a, a, a flat to live in. And then we ask the secondary questions, which is what, what do you need to sustain your tenancy agreement? And the person may have problems with addiction, mental health problems. They may have had problems with um, uh, getting on with their neighbours in the past. So let's find them a house first. Let's not put them through some kind of rehabilitation programme for a year or two which is very likely not to be successful in any case, before we find them somewhere to live. It's an approach that's been adopted in Finland for Housing First. And it's not the only reason by any means, but it's one of the main reasons why homelessness, street homelessness, is a thing of the past in Finland. Mm. 
Well, that's food for thought, isn't it, in the current uh, time in, in the UK? You're a kind of housing association come life coaching organisation, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> in the Sunday Times, uh, 100 best not-for-profit organisations to work for. In fact, you're the only int- entrant in that list from Sheffield. Uh, BHP Accountants from Sheffield is in the top 100 mid-sized companies and I'll be interviewing uh, their uh, joint managing partner, Lisa Layton, in a future episode. So what is that? To, that makes South Yorkshire Housing Association a great place to work? We spend a lot of time talking about leadership and culture. Might sound a bit corny, but we do. <laughs> so we think about who we are as leaders and what our practices are and what our behaviours are. Um, what is it that engages people, that people respond to at a human level? And what is it that alienates people? So we try to come across as natural, as authentic, as as human, as as human beings, and not have any airs and graces. So that's probably the first thing that um, people notice when they come into the organisation. So I I always um, meet up with people when they first start. We pull people together and uh, have a, an induction session with them. And so I get to know people when they first join and I'll bump into them in the corridor a week or two later and say, how are you getting on? And 99 times out of 100, what the response is, is this is a really friendly place, isn't it? We're not, we are absolutely not perfect, but we are very friendly. Um, people will say, Oh, there's no empire building around here, is there? People, people want to support me and want to help me to do a good job. And I think if you, that kind of thing is pretty tangible in the culture of an organisation. You sense it when you walk into a building. Um, you sense it from the receptionist to, to right up to the board, the, the, the board of management. If that, if that is a real strong culture and set of values. So one of the one of the mantras, one of the Bibles, if you like, that, um, that we follow um, closely is the work that Jim Collins did in the United States from out of Harvard University, the good to great work. Mm. Uh, it's been around for a, a long time. It's very solid, um, based on very solid research. And what Jim Collins talks about is level five leadership, which is leadership based on humility, authenticity. He tells the story of how a new chief executive is brought in and uh, the press interview this man and say, what is it you're going to do? And the fellow says, I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> it doesn't sound like a very winning pitch, does it, for, uh, for uh, putting yourself forward for a, a, a job. But really, the, when you first start, you, you don't know that much. You, you can pick stuff up superficially, but you need to switch into sponge mode. You need to listen to people and really have a sense of what's going on. So what he then goes on to talk about is how he's going to make those decisions and how he's going to uh, engage with people and draw in their 
expertise. And in, in fact, when I started, I mean, this goes back over, I've been here 24 years now, but when I started, my third day was the annual general meeting. And somebody asked me that question, actually, what are you going to do? Now, Jim Collins hadn't done his research by that stage. But just instinctively, I said, well, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to sack the top team. And <laughs> it might sound, sound daft, but um, an awful lot of um, new chief executives, uh, new football managers, you know, wherever you look, um, people feel that they have to make their mark by being disrespectful about what happened in the past, um, removing the people who have been there and uh, bringing in people that are like them uh, with their kind of uh, values. Maybe people they've worked with at I don't know, previous football clubs, whatever it might be. I just think we do things differently. We recruit people. Uh, we have a very, very strenuous, rigorous uh, assessment process and uh, we spend a lot of time trying to get to who is this person who's sitting opposite me? Who, what, do they, what do they stand for? How do they behave? What is it that motivates them? Through all kinds of different assessments and interviews and psychometric tests, this kind of thing. And by the end of it, we have a pretty good feel about the person. So it's the person we recruit for rather than necessarily what's in their CV. You can always train people on stuff um it's very difficult to change who people really are deep down and if i if I, my recollection of level five leadership is correct the the flip side of level five leadership is a steely determination to succeed in service of the organization isn't it i kind of detect that in you am i right um I, I am competitive. Yeah, <laughs> I am competitive. I, I like um, I like winning. Uh, I like comparing our performance with other organisations. But I I don't think I'm kidding myself. By by nature, I'm a collaborator. Most of what we do, our big successes have been in, in partnership with other organisations. Uh, one of the things I love to do is to bring organisations together around a common agenda. On Friday, for example, I'm with Ed Miliband. Um, he was one of the commissioners on the Shelter Commission report, which considered the future of social housing. And obviously, for social housing, there are huge trust issues in the wake of Grenfell, the Grenfell tragedy. Um, can our tenants trust that they're safe in their homes? The tragedy there was that the Grenfell management was undertaken by the largest tenant management co-op in the country. So if the tenant's voice should have been heard in the boardroom anywhere, it should have been with Kensington and Chelsea TMO. So if, he, if they could fail, if they could get it so badly wrong, so could other organisations. So that's, the, that's the issue, one of the issues that Ed was involved with on that commission. And on Friday, I'm meeting him with a dozen other people, either tenants of or people who work for, other housing associations and local authorities and arm's length man management organisations. And we're coming together with Ed for a couple of hours to talk about that whole agenda. It's just one, one example of how I think that that's uh, a critical issue for us, how we build trust and make sure that we're as accountable as we possibly can, can be. Clear issue for South Yorkshire housing, but aren't we much better off really thinking through those things alongside our tenants and alongside other organisations facing the same issue and alongside a, a, 
a local politician who's got some ideas on that. So, Tony, you've got a diversity of tenants. Is that diversity reflected in your management team? Yes, it is. So the majority of our tenants, the heads of the household, are women. And the majority of people that I work with, who are both the directors but also the operational managers, are women. In fact, the technical trades, because very often that's where you get the, uh, you get the male-female split, our director of development, that's new building, and our manager of the new build programme and also the manager of our maintenance programme, property maintenance services, they're all women. And we haven't, I haven't set out deliberately to recruit women, but what's the phrase? A woman needs to be twice as good as a man in order to get a job. Fortunately, that's not difficult. Um, (laughs) There are an awful lot of very bright women out there and people look at our organisation and see them in positions of influence and may be more attracted than to coming to work for South Yorkshire Housing than for other organisations. And what do you consider your greatest work-related achievement to date? I think uh, it is building the organisation I'm chief executive of now. Uh, It's the second organisation I've been chief executive of but I've stayed here far longer than my last association and it really is quite a different place in terms of the scale of activities and the ambition to the organisation I took over. So when I started there was 90 people worked for us, we now have 750. We are up to all kinds of stuff, so we, uh, we run a, an estate agency We've set up a joint venture company with other housing associations to develop housing for sale. We're running a randomised control trial at the moment on behalf of the Department of Work and Pensions. We do all kinds of things. And when I joined my association, uh, its focus was much narrower and its impact was far less. And have there been any um, experiences on the way that you've learnt from? Oh, yes. (laughs) Hesitate to use the word mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the um, one of our managers set up a session uh, a year or so ago, which was headlined, "Oops, that's interesting. I've made a mistake," and um, she very kindly asked me to be the first up. So I'll tell you one of the stories that uh, that I I told then. So one of the things we did was to provide the support at the housing and support service for asylum seekers in Yorkshire and the Humber and our project was called Safe Haven Yorkshire and we ran that for six years we employed 175 people they spoke 49 languages between them and we provided support for up to 3,000 people at any one time it was a fantastic project I was deeply disappointed when we were undercut by well I better not say who but um, one of the uh, the for-profit providers who undercut us on price but absolutely not on quality six years later anyway a couple of years into this our project manager who worked for the home office realized that the basis on which the payments were being made to us had been calculated incorrectly And um, this was an entirely innocent mistake. Um, We had no idea. And the the Home Office had no idea either. It was a very eagle-eyed reading of the contract. (laughs) 
And the upshot was that we owed the Home Office, according to the letter of the contract, £7 million. Um, that is a big figure. That's the kind of figure that gets chief executives sacked and uh, puts organisations into bankruptcy. So what we did was to set up what's called ADR, stands for Alternative Dispute Resolution. So rather than just set the two sets of solicitors onto each other, mm. we got ourselves into two rooms with an ADR uh, negotiator uh, working, uh, working with us. And we started at 10 o'clock in the morning. We finished at 1 o'clock in the morning the following, the following night. And what it came down to was that when we said we had no idea that um, we were receiving money that we shouldn't have done, um, they didn't completely believe us. And <laughs> the solution, the resolution that was found, was that I had to swear on a Bible that I did not know <laughs> that, <laughs> that we were overclaiming this money. And on that basis, they came to an agreement with us where we paid them back £1 million, and we could afford that. That was okay. Um it just shows, doesn't it? You, you, you think you know all kinds of stuff around negotiation and contracts and risk management and stuff, and then something comes completely out of left field like that that there's no pattern book for, and um, you just have to back yourself and um, trust the process that, <laughs> and well, trust that uh, um, something is going to come out of it that you absolutely cannot see right at the beginning. And is there a particular experience or person that's inspired you in your leadership journey, Tony? Yes. So I think the the people who I tend to follow are people who come across as just exceptional human beings. So not the the captainitis, if you like, not the the Richard Branson follow me over the parapet type of leaders. It's much more people who come across as humane, creative, uh, principled people. Like, for example, Julia Unwin, who is the well, formerly the chief executive of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. She chaired recently the Civil Society Futures Commission which looked at this whole issue of trust and power and accountability. People like Julia are inspirational, certainly somebody that I would want to emulate and learn from and spend time with. Mm. Yeah, I love it when you cite someone who no one else has heard <laughs> of probably, but yeah. at the same time, my own experience has been that it's those people that work away steadily in the background, not seeking the limelight, who, who, who make the difference. Yeah. And is there something you'd still like to achieve before you retire? Um, Got a few years, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, not, so, not so many anymore. I, I think um, the, it's the Waits Foundation that gave, gave, me this, uh, gave me this idea. What they say is that when you leave the organisation... If you've done a good job, the organisation should be in better shape than it was when you took it on. And um, that's, the, that's the principle that I try to live by. And I guess for somebody who has been there for 24 years, um, I've, I need to say, well, next year I want it to be better, better organisation than it is now. I, I know that it's, 
it's strong. We've, we're just recruiting a director at the moment. I've been absolutely inundated by the number of people ringing me up and uh, a good number of them saying, we just want to come and work for South Yorkshire Housing. We're doing a job 200 miles away that's quite similar, that maybe is paid the same or slightly more or whatever. We just want to come and work for you, with you. And that shows me when people give you that feedback. You you always get a few sycophants, don't you? (laughs) That kind of situation when you're recruiting. But when you hear it again and again and again, you know it's for real. So I want to maintain that and keep growing um, that culture of the organisation and help to support the other people that I'm working alongside to be their them best their best selves as well and um, I mean ult- ultimately to be able to take over from me and and be uh, a chief executive for the organisation so succession planning is uh, is a key part of uh, what I'm uh, concentrating on at the moment. What does your self-care regime look like? I mean, you arrived on a bike today, so do I take it that cycling's part of that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've... Um, and yoga? Yeah, cycling and yoga, definitely. I used to run, but uh, I can't... I used to run the Sheffield Half Marathon regularly. But uh, no, I, I cycle uh, wherever I can. I'm not a, uh, a man in Lycra. I don't go out at the weekends and do 50 miles. Uh, when I used to run, I probably overtook more people than I, I'm overtaken by. On my bike, I'm a very slow cyclist. I had uh, a chap pulled up alongside me the other day and asked me whether I knew I'd just been overtaken by a woman in a floral skirt. And uh, I just thought, I couldn't care less. What's your problem? Um, so I, en- I enjoy uh, my cycling. So, yeah, physical activity, definitely. I have seven children including uh, stepchildren. So all human life is here with my family. <laughs> and um, they're, they're very, very grounding. So uh, if ever I get any airs and graces or start to get, get uh, big-headed or whatever, they just, they just tell me exactly what they think of me. And uh, it doesn't last long. It's funny, there's a common thread there with Nancy Fielder who appeared in the last episode. Okay, yeah. Um, is there a book, podcast, or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? I've got to, I've got to say, good to great again. So it's an easy read. It's very well told. Really strong science behind the whole thing. Um, we came across it about ten years ago, and there's all kinds of other stuff that uh, that's out there that's interesting. Books like Quiet and uh, some of the podcasts that. Um, that you get from people like Simon Sinek, for example, brilliant thinkers um, and brilliant communicators as well. But I always return to Good to Great because it's uh, uh, he talks in uh, he talks very visually, talks about hedgehogs and buses and and wheels, and um, they, they stick in the they stick in the mind and they make sense and they they work. So far as I can see, they work. I've I've got I've got more um, direction and inspiration from that book and that approach than from anything else. If you could go back 30 years in your career, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> um, I, I, I worried an awful lot 30 years ago. I was forever worrying about making a mistake. And I hope this doesn't sound too trite, but these days I think 
two things happen. Either things work well, <laughs> in which case, great. You're freewheeling down the hill. Enjoy it. Or you can, you can hit a problem. It can be uphill. Uh, you can make a mistake. But that genuinely is a learning opportunity. And if you work in a culture where mistakes and learning are valued and openness are valued and you're not looking for who to blame then you can flourish in that situation and I know I've learned more from my mistakes than from what's gone well and if you're not working in that kind of culture go and work somewhere else. (laughs) Tony it's been a huge pleasure and privilege to interview you today um, I would ask if the uh, director's job's still open, but I don't think <laughs> I could match the competence or the candour of uh, Sharon that we talked about earlier. So thanks ever so much for uh, coming in. That's a pleasure. Real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, at www.compassionate-leadership.co.uk or on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com, Chris Whitehead. This show was recorded at Rebel Base Media in Sheffield, and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. <laughs> <laughs>